welcome back to Holy Ordinary. I am your host, Laura Kelly, and um, welcome to episode four. This is, uh, I think the tentative title right now is God Bless America, question mark. Um, so we'll see if that sticks by the time I actually get around to publishing or not, but I think that still gives you the idea of what you're jumping into. Um, so at this point, as I'm recording this, and as this will be released, the 4th of July has passed. Um, and I, because of COVID, um, did not end up getting into a church this year, um, for the 4th of July, but I can recall clearly, uh, last summer's 4th of July, I was at the beach and I went to a church with my mom and it was an Episcopal church, but they had, for their 4th of July service, they had, um, like a, in the... Lutheran, Anglican, Episcopal, Catholic, they bring in a cross at the beginning. Um, they have a crucifer, he's called a crucifer, bringing the cross to the front. It's like a big procession, leads the choir in. And um, they had that for the flag, for the American flag, and uh, like placed it at the front. And all of the hymns that day had been um, changed to patriotic songs. And I don't remember what the sermon was on specifically, Um but I know it had something to do with uh, patriotism in some capacity. Now, it wasn't a sermon about patriotism, but it connected. He, the pastor connected it to um, the holiday that was going on and that was being celebrated that weekend. Um, so, in my at my home church growing up, we always had we were never really home for it. But the few times that we were home around the Fourth of July and went to church, um, there was. They had like a congregational agreement um, that everybody would wear red, white, and blue. So we did that, but I don't really remember any flag procession necessarily or uh, patriotic songs being sung, although that probably happened. Um, but anyways, that just got me thinking about, yeah, like what what's going on with that? What's up with um, why we do those things? I remember my freshman year of college, one of the popular churches around here I went with my friend for, I want to say it was Labor Day, and there was a huge flag, Um, it was like a stage, and the the flag was hanging behind the stage, so that it was like the backdrop for the band, Um, which I had, (laughs) I was like so surprised to see that, Um, but it was, yeah, to commemorate the holiday, and I don't think they did anything necessarily patriotic, but it was just kind of there, like, as a reminder and on display, I think they had the veterans, they asked the veterans to stand up and they applauded them. Um, so anyways, all of that got me thinking about, yeah, patriotism. And, um, there's been a lot of interesting (laughs) debates, um, on all areas of the subject. Obviously there's some spiritual groups like, um, Jehovah's Witnesses don't take oaths, most Anabaptists don't take oaths. So stuff like the Pledge of Allegiance, um, especially for those kids who are growing up in school where the pledge is said every day, that's become even a court controversy because apparently um, kids didn't used to have to say, or kids were used to be required to say the pledge and lead the pledge. Now it's teachers, at least for me growing up, it was teachers that led the pledge. Um, And so for certain church groups, that's the case. For others, 
there hasn't really been like a problem for most evangelicals um, saying the pledge. I know that some, there's also been controversy about um, with atheists or people who are of non-Christian, non even non-monotheistic faith um, with the whole one nation under God clause in there um, or phrase. Um, there's been a lot of controversy about that. So anyways, in the spirit of 4th of July, I was thinking about all of these things and I knew I really wanted to do an episode about that just to, again, get the conversation started. It's something that happens and sometimes people aren't okay with it. Sometimes people are. So um, let's talk about it. Um, so this podcast is kind of going to be divided into three sections. The first section I want to draw primarily upon a book that my friend Anna Whitaker gave me um, called Desiring the Kingdom by James K. A. Smith. And I haven't read the whole book. Um, I've read one of his other books is an absolute favorite of mine, but uh, this particular section of the book talks about, um, well, his thesis of the book is more about we are what we love, and so this section of the book talks about how our liturgies, which are kind of like rituals that we do, um, typically liturgy is talking about a religious context, but his argument is that the way that we carry out certain societal rituals, like even going to the shopping mall, um, can be done in what what is supposedly a neutral, but he's like, it's very religiously charged, and these rituals shape who we are. So he has a whole section um, in this book about militant patriotism in America. So... I want to start by just giving a brief synopsis slash commentary on that uh, to kind of get where I'm coming from because I think lots of evangelical Christians who I'm based on who I've promoted this to, I think that most of my audience is composed of evangelical Christians, um, don't have an issue with patriotism and I think it's kind of a, turned into a stereotype almost which is unfair because I, most of the evangelical Christians I know are not like overly in your face about America being the greatest country on earth or something like that um, but most of them are probably on the perspective of like why does it matter if we do that to commemorate the 4th of July or why, does it, why does it matter if we do that to commemorate Labor Day in the church? Why does it matter if we have a, an American flag in the church permanently? Um, because lots of churches do that. And I'm not outright disagreeing with you. I'm just wanting to start the conversation. And I think this book helps us start from the other side of the conversation. So um, basically, Smith's argument in this book is that cultural institutions are religious in nature, as I said. And because of that, in those institutions demand our allegiance. They want to make us disciples and they want to form us into a certain kind of person. Um, and the reason that Smith says this is bad is because um, the kind of citizens that we are being formed into or the kind of image that you're being formed into by having uh, your nation's figure as your primary allegiance that makes you into a person opposed to the goals and values of Jesus Christ. So, for instance, um, 
that the liturgy of the United States is intended to, which is that whole idea of like home of the brave, land of the free, land that I love, um, which again are not inherently bad. Um, but he's saying liturgical, almost propaganda type stuff. But the interesting part is, and he touched on this, is that it's not necessarily promoted by the government. It's like coming from within the ethos of the people. Um, those liturgies are intended to make us into good, loyal, and producing citizens who, when called upon, are willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for the good of the nation. This, The liturgies of the United States are seen in the required daily Pledge of Allegiance every I was in public school K through 12 and every day and, and we did the Pledge of Allegiance and even in elementary school we had a school pledge that we said after the Pledge of Allegiance to obviously America. Um, but there's a very interesting story with the Pledge of Allegiance that I will probably get into later. I'm not going to bring it in right now just so that I can get done with this synopsis but anyways so if you're looking forward to that stay tuned. Um, but anyway, so the liturgies of the United States are enforced and ingrained in our children through the daily pledge through if you went to a public high school or even private high school, I guess. Um, the national anthem is always sung at Friday night football games or any sporting event, really NASCAR, NFL games and different things like that. And we even do it annually in Fourth of July festivities, parades, celebrations. So this liturgy, this indoctrination is not necessarily indoctrination in a civics class, which I think most people, I know we had to take it at my high school, but it's not learning about the government, but it's in these normal non-religious events that happen often, such as like everyone standing in a stadium uh, for the national anthem. But it's interesting because the national anthem is written with military language, so it is a rehearsal and kind of a renewal of seeing our national identity as Americans forged through a blood sacrifice. And that's ringing through everybody's minds every time you go to a sporting event. And so it eventually, after reciting it so many times, placing your hand over your heart, it forms your idea about that topic and about that identity and conforms your will to that. This is Smith's argument. Um, also, the flag is everywhere, especially when the national anthem is sung. And during the pledge, we turn to the flag. So you kind of have that symbol to look to uh, during you, which you associate with the words that you're saying. Uh, so it places within Americans a certain reverence to the ideal that is being said, which is loyalty to the home of the free, so that we might someday be called to sacrifice ourselves, be willing to sacrifice ourselves for that ideal. Um, the interesting thing that Smith says about this is that, that such nationalistic allegiance is willing to make room for additional loyalties, but not trumping loyalties. So his example of this is like, just try to stay seated at the next playing of the national anthem. And, you know, no matter what your reason is, you, you will never be able to have another allegiance that is allowed to trump that national allegiance. allegiance. So, uh, in the book, Smith says that the fact that there seems to be little tension between Christianity and American nationalism 
is not because of the generosity of the American ideal of religious freedom, but rather a sign of a Christianity that has accommodated itself to the American American ideals ideals of battle, military sacrifice, individual freedom, which he says negative individual freedom, which I'm not really sure what that means, but I think it's more like self-serving individual freedom, and prosperity through property, capitalism. So that's why Smith is opposed to having an institution like American nationalism that demands our allegiance because it's forming us into a person that is, it's forming our version of Christianity into an institution that looks more like in line with America's ideals, such as uh, battle or military sacrifice, which he says is much different than Christian martyrdom. Um, and that, but he's saying that betrays what the picture of the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. So if our allegiance lies in something that doesn't match what is the kingdom of God, then like, why would we make that our ultimate allegiance, our primary allegiance? So somebody right now might be saying, well, you can still be a patriot and not have total allegiance. And I'm like, yeah, I totally agree with that. Amen. It just makes it more complicated when you have a flag or a per- like a permanent flag at the front of your sanctuary or um, seeing those battle hymns in your church on the 4th of July just creates a little bit more tension if you view it that way. Um, but again, he says that there's no perceived tension because our our liturgies have become so shaped within our imagination and so trumped by American uh, liturgy that it turns more into the American gospel rather than the gospel. So kind of shifting gears here back to the pledge... The Pledge of Allegiance is not to God. The Pledge of Allegiance is to the flag and the republic for which it stands. Um, So that's not, you're you're still not claiming allegiance to God just by saying one nation under God. Um, It's honestly really interesting, the story of the pledge. Like I said earlier, um, I guess I'll get into that now. Also, there's a short podcast on this about... um, about the Pledge of Allegiance and the history of the Pledge of Allegiance on Stuff You Should Know. That's another podcast. It's by How Stuff Works. Super interesting. The guys are kind of funny, so you should check it out. Um, but yeah, the pledge didn't originally include Under God. It was added in the 50s, I believe, um, by a man named Reverend Doherty. And he was an immigrant, but he said to omit the words Under God in the Pledge of Allegiance was be to omit the definitive factor in the American way of life. Um, He said, if you deny the Christian ethic, you fall short of the American ideal of life. So then Eisenhower was at this sermon that this guy gave, and Eisenhower was like, yeah, okay, and then signed it off. So I just think that it's really interesting to say that if you deny the Christian ethic, you fall short of the American ideal of life. Because especially today compared to the 50s, there are a lot more people who not only are not Christian, but are not religious. And I think they feel like they're probably living up to the American ideal of life. And the American ideal of life is not 
our founding fathers were not trying to make this a Christian nation. Um, obviously, there's a reason that the whole idea of separation of church and state was instated. And our founding fathers, while they believed in God clearly, um, are tended to be talked about more as deists rather than Christians, which means they're like, yeah, God set everything in motion and now it's our job to do what we do. So if you want to talk about American ideals, even looking back at the founding fathers, there's not a necessarily a basis in strictly Christian ideals. And furthermore, trying to apply Christian ideas and ideals and mold Christian ideals to a system of government is not the intention that Jesus has in saying spread the kingdom of God. Um, I think he's pretty clear about that um, in the whole give to Caesar what is Caesar's commentary. Again, with the pledge, um, it's interesting for if you, you know, you're on the idea that the pledges says God, so it should be, and it talks about Christian ideals, you know, like justice. Well, even the sentence about uh, liberty and justice, it says that um, our nation with liberty and justice for all, assuming that it had already liberty and justice within its nation. But that assumes that the at the time that the pledge was written, which was in the 1890s originally, America was already at its highest point of providing that to its people. But if you know history, that's before the age of uh, children's rights and the Jim Crow South is on the rise and there's lots of injustice and disparity. Uh, women can't vote and I don't think that's a demonstration of liberty and justice. So I think that with the pledge, if you're saying that a Christian ideal is being upheld, um, it's kind of talking in there like, we've already achieved liberty and justice, but clearly in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God hasn't come yet. How could we have complete liberty and complete justice? And furthermore, I don't think anybody would say, yeah, we're a country with full liberty and justice available for anybody who walks in, regardless of what side of the political spectrum you're on. Um, I think everybody would agree there's always room for improvement. So I just think that's an interesting um, phrase that was included within the pledge. And th again, that's something to think about just as you're thinking about why do I recite this thing um, before a town council meeting or whatever. Um, and just think more fully about what you're really saying. Um, but anyways, to, to finish up Smith's summary, um, his idea is that what begins as a stated commitment, I pledge allegiance to the flag, becomes a functional commitment and it shapes our loyalties and our actions through repetition of the pledge. Um, so he says, again, yeah, there are good reasons to worry because the ideals of the Republic of America are antithetical, that's his word, to some of the defining ideals of the people of God um, because we're called to imitate a suffering savior who was executed at the hands of military power. So, again, just something to think about. Um, he also says this liturgy is reinforced through, like, movies like The Patriot, um, patriotic TV and movies, stuff like that. Um, he talks about how 
there's a guy named Mal who says, within reason, patriotic affection is natural. So this is kind of opposing Smith. But then Smith responds by saying, but can there be a natural affection for an artificial reality? If there was ever something like a natural fatherland, the modern nation state is a long way from such a reality. And there he's talking about how we have such a melting pot of people. How could we have a natural fatherland here? Like this is stimulated by immigration and um, slaves being brought over, people migrating, all those different things. So that it's not really saying, he's not really saying that America is a natural reality. And then Smith kind of closes off that rebuttal to that idea by quoting Augustine, who says, they live in their own countries, but only as non-residents. He's talking about Christians. They participate in everything as citizens, but endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland, and every fatherland is foreign. And that's kind of where Smith ends saying, like, yeah, you can still live there and participate in government, participate in politics, um, but you participate in it as a foreigner to that country because that's not your true home, that's not your true identity. Um, So again, that's just something to think about when you're forming your ideas about patriotism and the extent to which it should be present in church where the kingdom of God, our primary identity, is supposed to be being expressed. second part of this podcast, I'd really just like to talk about the case for patriotism and then kind of rebut it. Um, So to me, an interesting thing about um, the case for patriotism from a Christian perspective is that it's always riddled with caveats, which is not a bad thing. And I think a lot of where those caveats come from is um, discussion of patriotism turning into an idol and Christians place caveats saying, like, you should be proud of your country, you should love your country, you should be a patriot, you should endorse patriotism, celebrate the 4th of July, um, but just don't let your allegiance to the United States come before your allegiance to God. With those caveats, I feel like that's pretty uh, clear and simple. Um, However, I think that you can still dig deeper than that at least to think about it. If you land back at that place with just those caveats of don't let it turn into an idol, that's perfectly fine. Um, I read an article by this guy named Mark Melton, and he has made this case using the backup of C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller. And basically in quoting Lewis, he talks about Lewis's case for patriotism as love of home. Um, Lewis talks about loving the smell of where you grew up, of tea and of trains and acquaintances from where you grew up and loving that. And he says in that, you can't stop loving home just because your home has faults. Translating that, Melton makes the argument that um, you can't not be patriotic just because America has faults. Um, So, but in response to that, I would say even though Milton brings up good points, and he brings up good points throughout the article, as I'll get to those, and he tries to have a balanced view on the topic, I would respond to that argument by saying that love of home does not have to equate in the kind of American nationalism that we see today. Um, 
I loved my childhood and I loved growing up where I grew up for the most part. Um, the experiences I had, the smell of my home, uh, and I loved living in a place, America, with religious freedom and voting rights and all of the things that we have because of people's sacrifices and ingenuity. But my issue is indoctrination of devotion to the entity which provides those things. So, for example, let's say I have a mentor, and I might love that mentor and feel the urge to protect that mentor when adversity strikes her. But devotion to her ideologies, like if she had the ideologies of prosperity through property, military sacrifice, um, glorifying military sacrifice or something like that, uh, I would not drop everything to defend all of her um, and all of her ideologies when those concepts are in contrast to the shape of my faith. Um, I just can't do that. So why would I devote myself and pledge allegiance to that mentor, um, whether verbally or not, strictly, you know, no strings attached type thing. So Melton then goes on to quote a guy named um, Tim Keller. And Keller has made this argument saying that you don't, even though you become a Christian, you don't stop being an American. Um, your race and your nation that you are from just don't, or that you live in, just don't define you as fully um, now that you're a Christian. Um, and he also says, he, in his argument, at least that Melton quoted, um, is that Jesus even maintained his love of Jerusalem and his Jewish identity um, while he was on earth. So, again, I get why, where he's coming from. Um, but to Keller's point, I would say that I agree with Augustine. We don't stop being citizens of our nations, but we're also called to be foreigners and those devoted and in allegiance to a kingdom other than ours and a kingdom and a people of other nations. Um, furthermore, to the Jesus point, uh, I think it's important to bring up that as Jesus is before Pilate, he kind of pulls rank. He says, or Pilate says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? In response, Pilate says, am I a Jew? I can just picture that. What, am, what do I look like, a Jew? Uh, your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. So in his moment as he's about to be crucified and he knows that, um, he does not, in fact... Uh, pledge allegiance to the Jews, um, which I just think is kind of interesting, and I, maybe Keller does bring that up elsewhere, but perhaps Melton doesn't know that, I don't know. Um, not saying that Jesus wasn't aware of, proud of, tied to his Jewish identity, and obviously he loved Jerusalem and he loved the Jews, but his allegiance did not lie with them. Um, again, Jesus plays a little different role than we do in the kingdom of God, so perhaps his kind of being like, I belong to another kingdom is because he's, I don't know, head of that kingdom, but we are said to be citizens of heaven as humans. So it's still just a thought that take that into account when you're about to die on the hill of being an American patriot. Um, again, I feel like this has been kind of critical. I just want to 
make clear that I truly love our country and our home. Um, it's beautiful, and a lot of beautiful people have died um, so that I could have the platform to share this opinion. Um, the opinion that I'm promoting is that you can love America and not have to pledge your allegiance to her. So, with that, I want to shift into the third segment of this podcast episode uh, and talk a little bit about America and the church. The 4th of July was the inspiration for this podcast again, as I said. And the 4th of July often results in patriotic music, display of the flag, and perhaps a sermon with those kind of patriotic undertones that I mentioned I witnessed last summer. Um, But even as we were celebrating the signing of the Declaration of the Independence in 1776, we can't forget that that document we're celebrating that says all men are created equal also includes a description of Native people as merciless Indian savages. Obviously, the Declaration of Independence did a lot of things. (laughs) It separated us, declared us separate from Britain, brought on the battle for independence. We won new country born, a country born with ideals of freedom and constitution and representation, democracy. And I think subjectively, Seeing far away, I think those are good things. Um, And I wore a red, white, and blue on the 4th of July. Um, But as proud as we are of this country, we can't forget, and as proud as we are of our forefathers for declaring those freedoms for us, um, we can't forget that that document that we celebrate for making us free didn't free all peoples. So when you have a celebration of that in your church, Remember the minority member or the immigrant that you might have in your church um, because they might feel a little differently about that. And if your goal as a church is to bring people into participation of the kingdom of God, perhaps you should not bash them over the head with um, participation in the American identity as much. So again, even even taking that further, like in Genesis, it says that God created humanity in God's image. In, in the divine image, God created male and female. And that's just not, that's clearly not what Thomas Jefferson is promoting when he says all men are created equal. So that's, again, that's just something to think about um, as you are perhaps celebrating the 4th of July next year. Um, Moving on to the flag, there's a complicated history um, as to how American flags became somewhat of a staple in our churches throughout America. Um... Prior to World War I, not, 
many churches displayed the American flag. Um, at least there's not a lot of record about it, as far as I can tell. Um, but during World War One, many churches began to display American flags because it was a way to test the loyalty of immigrants. So immigrants that would come over um, from Europe would establish their churches and have their own pastors, and a way of testing their loyalty to America was if they were displaying American flags. So it's not like outright patriotism, like, yes, we're excited, but it's more just like, hey, please don't raid our church. Um, after the film in the 1920s of Birth of a Nation, the KKK experienced a revival, basically, um, and as most people know, they were acting extremely bigoted towards black and immigrant communities, and the American flag was used as their primary promotional uh, symbol for their organization. So, in effort to recruit more people, they visited a lot of churches and began to distribute Bibles alongside American flags. So that's how a lot of American flags ended up in churches, or how, how it became a, a symbol kind of normalized within the church. So as as that began to happen, more churches incorporated flags. Um, and also with World War II, so like World War I ended, 1920s, KKK boom of flags and churches, and then World War II, people began integrating flags as a way to honor those fighting in the war across the sea. So which is not necessarily inherently a bad thing. It's just, again, it's not a symbol of patriotism. It's a symbol of remembrance for those who are fighting. So patriotism and Christianity continued to soar in post-World War II America, and that's when Eisenhower added under God, and as a result, people bought more flags. Churches bought more flags. So if you go to a church that displays the flag year-round, or even on the 4th of July only. Just consider the church's mission to love and embrace all people. Consider the visitor who might, or even member, who might be an immigrant or minority and what those symbols mean to them in a space that's supposed to be accepting of them. If you don't change your mind on the topic, that's fine. Um, in fact, I'd really appreciate dialogue about this. So again, if you want to DM me on the Holy Ordinary Instagram account, which is at Holy Ordinary, um, I would really appreciate it because I would love some dialogue about this um, or even throw something in the comment section under the episode four uh, post. I don't have all the answers. I'm still learning. I might change my mind on this. Um, and I might say, you know what? It's actually not a big deal. I don't know why I even made a podcast episode about it. But right now, this is where I'm at. And I think that churches in America have a lot to reconsider about the way that other people people view us and we need to remember to stay true to our primary identity, our created identity, rather than the one imposed on us based on where we live. So um, this is a little bit shorter of an episode, but again, I would really appreciate it if you got the conversation started and please be respectful if you do so. And I can't wait to see you guys next week uh, where we talk again about spirituality and nature as we look at ecotherapy with Sarah Vogel. 
So thank you guys so much and I hope you have a great week.